You know, it's possible to know parts of a story and completely miss the meaning of the story. Somebody years ago, back when people printed TV guides in newspapers, uh, decided to get a little fun with the description of The Wizard of Oz. Maybe you've seen this. It's been around a while since TV guides were published in newspapers, I guess. Uh, and this picture here is right here, a description. The Wizard of Oz transported, I know it's kind of blurry, but you know, it's old. Uh, the Wizard of Oz transported to a surreal landscape. A young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. <laughs> Which, you know, it's true. I mean, that's a, that, that did happen, but it's not really the meaning of, it's not the story of The Wizard of Oz. Somebody kind of picking up on that did the same thing with Star Wars as a tweet that says, a goblin teaches a teenager to use magic so he can kill his father. Which is true, I mean, but that's not really the story. It's in it. I mean, it's kind of, you could do it that way, uh, but it's not the story of Star Wars. But, you know, it's possible wisdom understands that you can have different things true about a story and miss the story. And a lot of times that's what people do with the story of the Bible. They'll pick out things that are true. Yeah, that's in the Bible, and it's a kind of a weird thing in the Bible, and it kind of, but it's not really what the Bible is about. It's not really the message of the Bible. And that's also true when it comes to reading different stories in the Bible. It's possible to get the facts right and miss the meaning altogether. A lot of times people do that with Jesus' miracles. They get the facts right, but they miss the meaning completely. So I want to look today at John chapter 5 and 6. The two chapters kind of make a pericope, a little section that has one thought, and it's kind of, in some sense, you could say, a summary of the entire message of the Bible, told a different way, told through a couple miracles and told through a couple ways of talking about those miracles. So John chapter 5 begins with a miracle. Jesus walks into a pool in Jerusalem and there's a man that's been paralyzed for 38 years that's lying there. Now, you know, in Jesus's time, there weren't uh, wheelchairs and all kinds of things to help those who are paralyzed. If you were paralyzed in Jesus's day, you had to just lay there. He had a straw mat. He laid there on the mat. And the only way he could go somewhere else, be somewhere else, move somewhere else was to have somebody carry him. So in 38 years of this, you can imagine, if you just enter this story with your imagination, you can imagine the atrophy that would happen to this man's legs, the lower torso of his body, the lower section of his body, and even other parts of his body by having to adjust to not moving around with his legs. Jesus comes up to him, and he just asks him a question. He says, do you want to get well? Which is really a kind of a strange question, but... With Jesus, it's kind of a really important question because the answer to that is kind of maybe not as obvious as we might think. Do you want to get well? And then we read in verse 8, it says this, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. John says, At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now, again, we just let's stay here a minute in our imagination and catch this story because it would be easy to move on and say, yeah, Jesus healed somebody. But let's think about this, that with Jesus' words, get up, that Jesus just spoke words, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And with those words, in the time it took for those words to come out of Jesus' mouth, 
something happened on the molecular level, a kind of molecular regeneration of this man's atrophied legs. Somehow something changed in just a moment, in just seconds, where a molecular regeneration happened where this man could get up and pick up his mat and walk. And we read that story and we say, yeah, that's an example. That story, what's the, that's an example of Jesus' power. Jesus did miracles like that, and wouldn't it be great if we could just still have access to a Jesus like that who could walk around if somebody got sick or if somebody was paralyzed, and he could do miracles because their lives would be so much better, and that would be missing the whole point of the miracle altogether, completely missing it. Because Jesus then tells us, he interprets for us the meaning of the miracle. So, so Jesus says this in verse 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour, and that's that word again we've been looking at, at least when I preach this, idea of the hour is the reason Jesus came, his death and his resurrection and his return. It's talking about his return here. An hour is coming and is now here. So there's multiple levels here, a level that's the future and a level that's even now. When the dead will hear the voice, just the words, they'll hear the voice of the Son of God, the human embodiment of God that created this entire universe, the God who's the giver of all life, the human embodiment of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, just the God of the universe has life in himself, so he has granted the Son, the human embodiment of God, also to have life in himself. So, so even now, Jesus says, if those who are spiritually dead, the Bible talks about there's a kind of people walk around spiritually dead, and so that's a kind of a theme John has in the Gospel of John a lot. So on one level, the dead, those who are dead to spiritual reality, will hear the voice of the Son of God, hear the words and they will live. And so Jesus talks about that in John chapter 5 and 6. In verse 6, verse 63, he says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The very words have this, this God has life in himself, the power of life in who he is. Jesus is saying that that power of life is inherent in his very words that he speaks. The words I have spoken to you, it's just like when he said, get up. Those words created the healing that came with them that they commanded. He's saying that his words have the power to create the life that they command. That In those words themselves is the power to give life, even now, he says. But he's ultimately talking about when he returns. So he says in verse 28, he says, For an hour is coming when all, everyone, all who are in the tombs, figure of speech for everybody who's dead, will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of God, and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, Everyone is going to have a resurrection, Jesus says. Everyone's going to have a resurrection, either a resurrection to life 
or a resurrection to judgment. And we don't like this word judgment. And it's true. The Bible does talk about judgment. It's not the story of the Bible. We'll see in a minute. But it does talk about judgment. And you, you find this scattered throughout the Bible, this idea that our life is not our own. Now, in a sense, it's okay to talk about our own, my own life, it's my life, or my body. That's in a sense that that's true, but in the ultimate sense, it's, it's absolutely not true. That our life is a gift of God. It's kind of a loan, you might say. That we're going to have to give an account at the end of our life to our creator of how we used our life. And I find that it doesn't matter what kind of religious beliefs people have, it, everyone has this intuitive sense that it's true, that intuitively people kind of have this sense they're going to be accountable in some way for their life. Now, the Bible talks about God's judgment and it sometimes uses metaphors. Some of the metaphors the Bible uses to talk about judgment are metaphors like hell, the lake of fire, outer darkness. These are metaphors. They're not literal. They're figures of speech to poetically describe God's judgment either in this life, sometimes it talks about God's judgment in this life as those metaphors. And we do it too, right? Boy, that went through hell. His life is a living hell. We do the same thing. But most of the time it uses those metaphors to talk about the judgment that comes at the end. But, but here's the thing. They are metaphors. Nobody really knows the full meaning of those metaphors. I don't care how confident they may be when they talk to you or how confident somebody is or how confident you are. I'm here to tell you nobody really knows completely what those metaphors are about. They have meaning in them and we have to be humble to try to learn and to take them seriously while understanding that they are metaphors poetic descriptions of God's judgment, whether in this life or in the end, at the end of our lives, the end of the age. But by far, by far, the language that's used to talk about God's judgment more than any other is the words death or destruction or perish. So, for example, even in the Gospel of John, it's kind of that famous verse John 3.16, that's what you find. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, the human embodiment of God, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, so Jesus says that, or excuse me, John says that, that there's kind of two options. There's those who are going to perish and there are those who are going to have eternal life because they believe in the one and only embodiment of God. Now, the thing is, is that that, in some sense, the idea of perishing is the idea of God's judgment in making people perish is no different, ultimately, than the secular narrative that says everyone perishes. The secular narrative says when you die, you perish, you're gone, that's the end. So there's no difference except the difference is those who believe in the Son have eternal life. From the very first chapters of the Bible, the language that's used, God tells Adam and Eve, if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And the last 
chapters of the Bible talk about God's judgment as the second death. So let's look again at what Jesus says in verse 29. Those who have done good will come out to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's the problem, is that all of us are both. All of us have done good, and all of us have done evil. So what we do, and our culture kind of does, everybody kind of does, is we develop our own metaphor. We have a metaphor of scales, and we think of it in terms of, okay, everybody has good and evil, yeah. So if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm going to be okay at the judgment and have eternal life. But if not, then I won't be. But the problem with that is, it's not at all in the Bible. There's nothing like that kind of teaching anywhere in the Bible. So it's our own metaphor to try to deal with our own intuitive sense of good and evil having consequences before our God, before our Creator. We're accountable. The other problem with that is it really underestimates the reality of evil. I mean, when you really understand evil and the depth of evil in every person, there's not even a good thing that we do that is not in some way tainted by evil. Selfish motives, selfishness, thoughts about people. And so we, we, there's no way to avoid the reality of evil being permeating everything we do, even the good. So, so here's the thing. We have to decide what is the ultimate good the Bible tells us that we must do to have a resurrection of life. What's the ultimate good that we must do. Thankfully, in these two chapters, Jesus tells us. Because, see, the people are talking to Jesus, and they ask him that question. They're getting the message, and so they just point blank ask him. And so we might even think of ourselves, thank you for asking him, because that's what we want to ask him right now. So let's ask Jesus what they asked. It says, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works, the good, that God requires? Thankfully, Jesus answered. Jesus answered and said, the work of God is this. Now, this is going to be really important, right? This is the answer. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. To, to believe in him is what he's talking about. This is what Jesus' answer, that the, the, the answer is to, 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 to believe Jesus, to believe the voice, to believe the words spoken by Jesus that have spirit and have life in them, to listen to the voice, to hear the voice, and to follow Jesus' voice more than any other voice, even our own voice, is what it means to believe. It doesn't mean to have this intellectual assent that whatever is true. It's to hear his voice and to believe him. So when that happens, from that, then we actually do good. And we do what the Bible calls the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. More and more, this happens to somebody who believes. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That, that, that the more we believe and hear the voice of Jesus, the more the Spirit of God produces that kind of good fruit in our lives. And it's not going to be the absence of evil totally. And it's always going to be kind of a two steps forward, one step back. And it's a process of growth. And there's a lot of disappointments. But it's not the 
good in our behavior is talking about, Jesus is talking about the good of those who believe in him and hear his voice and everything he's been talking about that he came to give eternal life. So again, John sums it up in John chapter 3, verse 17. So verse 16, remember, said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the next verse, he says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. That's not the story of the Bible. The Bible wasn't written to talk about condemnation. That's not the narrative arc of the Bible at all. The Son didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save. And that word means restore, heal, to save the world through him. That's why Jesus came. This is already done, but he came to save. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. This is the status quo for everybody ever born. Already condemned because everybody ever born has a life that has more evil, evil than anybody really understands when it comes to understanding why God created us and what he wants from us in our lives. So Jesus is saying he came, or John is saying Jesus came to save. It's really no different than the secular narrative. The secular narrative says everybody's going to perish, and the Bible says, yeah, that's the status quo. The Bible agrees completely. But if there was no Jesus, if Jesus never came, that would be everybody. But because God became Jesus in the person, became human in the person of Jesus, the option is for people to hear his voice and to be saved. And so chapter six then gives us another miracle. In chapter six, Jesus is, is exhausted. His disciples are tired. They've been doing all kinds of teaching and all kinds of things. So they, they want to get away. They want to, like we do today, they want to go to a retreat across the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a little lake, really. And they go across the lake to this kind of wilderness area. There's hills, grass, all that kind of stuff. And, oh, they can finally get away. And they get over there, and they just see thousands of people finding them over there and coming over there to be with Jesus because he's been doing these miracles. And so Jesus and the disciples see thousands of people coming to spoil their retreat, their time alone, and they go, what are we going to do about food? Jesus brings it up, John says, because he knows what he's getting ready to do. So he wants his disciples to kind of struggle with it. And then eventually what happens is one of his disciples finds this boy that has five little barley loaves, like little five muffins made of barley, and two fish. And Jesus says, that's enough. Let's just have everybody sit down in the grass. And we'll, thousands of people, and everybody's like, what in the world is he doing? We're going to all sit down and eat five loaves of bread or five little love muffins? And so you have this thing where everybody sits down, and then it's described this way. We have to listen to the language because John uses language to crawl on all fours. He has a lot of poetic meaning in it. He says in verse 10, they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave, excuse me, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. So what seemed like scarcity, somehow by passing through the hands and words of Jesus becomes more than anybody could want, as much as they want. And so verse 12 says that when they had all had enough to eat, as much as they wanted, they gathered them and filled 12 baskets, gathered the leftovers, and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 
You just hear the language here of abundance. More than you could eat. More than you can want. What we thought was scarcity, Jesus takes it and again does some sort of molecular generation where he changes what's only five loaves of bread and two fish into enough that feeds thousands of people and the leftovers are more than what they had at the beginning. There's this language of overflowing, this language of abundance. And Jesus interprets it. We could, say, we could go to this miracle and we could say, you know, that's a really great miracle. It just shows that Jesus just does good. He wants to feed people who are hungry and he can miraculously give them food. Gosh, I wish we had a Jesus now around here to give us food. Wouldn't that be great? And that would be missing the whole point of the story completely. Because Jesus interprets the story. And he says this in verse 35 of chapter 6. He says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's that same language of just more than you could possibly want, and you'll never be without if you come to me, if you believe me, if you hear my voice, listen to my words, because the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. So if you come to me, you'll have more than you ever want. But We misinterpret that if we think he's talking about just this life. He kind of is a little bit, but not really. What he's talking about, it begins now, but it's times of this. But ultimately, he's talking about the end when he returns. Because he says this in verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, the human embodiment of God, and believes in him shall have eternal life. He's going back to the same thing he talked about in chapter 5 shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you are thinking that, isn't it great I made all this bread, wish we had Jesus around more so we could eat more, you've missed everything. All of this was to try to show you what eternal life is all about. Eternal life is this abundance of the beautiful, loving, constant presence of God. Eternal life is this abundance of satisfaction, abundance of beauty, abundance of joy, abundance of love. It's like what the Garden of Eden was when it says that God made every kind of tree that was pleasing to the eye and good for food, not just sustenance. It was enjoy to look at and it tasted awesome and it was every kind and there was more than you could ever eat from. This is the abundance that God wants for this world and Jesus is going to bring a resurrection to give. It's this abundance that is what Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Not just existence, that's a kind of hell, right? To just have existence, to have life abundantly with all this more than you could ever want and never being without. And when you understand your life is in that narrative, it helps you re-narrate the scarcities in your life. It helps you re-narrate the things that you regret in your past that you missed out on. It helps you re-narrate the suffering in your life that causes you not to have what you want your life to be now. It causes you to re-narrate your shortcomings that you wish you had compared to other people. It causes you to re-narrate this whole, what we think life is about, and to see it instead as this bigger story, this better story of believing in Jesus as the bread of life, the eternal life, and he will raise them up at the last day. Now, I want this to be true, right? I think you do too. 
But why do I believe it's true? Because I admit there's confirmation bias. I want it to be true, and so uh, I'm going to find reasons to believe it's true. But that works both ways, right? If you don't want it to be true, that's because of confirmation bias too. Works both ways. But we have to ask the question, why can we, why should we believe it's true? And the answer the Bible gives is always one singular answer, one answer. And that's because it already started with Jesus rising from the dead. And I believe there is far more evidence. This is an evidence-based faith. It's not a blind faith. It's not a jump-off-the-cliff faith. It's an evidence-based faith that I believe there's more evidence that the resurrection of Jesus explains far more about history than that it didn't happen. That the resurrection of Jesus explains far more in the documents that we have from history than that it didn't happen. The resurrection of Jesus explains far more in this radical change in the disciples of Jesus than if it didn't happen. The resurrection of Jesus is something that we have historically can evaluate of whether or not it is true. And it's not going to be 100%. You don't have 100% about very much in your life that you still go on anyway. It's an issue of deciding what's most plausible and putting your nickel down. That's what life is. There's this history professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her name's Molly Worthen, and, and she got her PhD from Yale, and she is somebody who's been a contributing writer to the New York Times. She does these pieces, kind of exposing scandal in the American church, and kind of the, you know, the things that are kind of the undesirables about mega churches and things like that. That's kind of her shtick. That's kind of what's made her famous. That's where her articles in Slate Magazine and the New York Times have focused on. Here's what happened. I was listening to a podcast where she's interviewed recently, and last August, less than a year ago, she became a Christian. She became a professing believer. And what happened was she said she read, she wanted to read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, That Hideous Strength. She read those, and she goes, you know, yeah, they're Christian. I didn't read them because they're Christian. They're just science fiction, and they're kind of fun, and I kind of was in the mood to read something kind of C.S. Lewis-y historical, but also fun, science fiction-y. She goes, I didn't have my guard up, but the sequence of those books shook my life. And she was really serious about it. She goes, it shook my life, shook my foundations. And as a historian, she began to really investigate historically the resurrection of Jesus. One of the books she read was by a New Testament professor and scholar who currently is at Oxford. His name is N.T. Wright. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Resurrection, said to be one of the best books on the resurrection. I haven't read all the books on the resurrection, but this is, in her mind, the best one she ever read. It shook her life as well. And she, in her own words, she says this after she read these books. She says, I felt really personally indicted as a historian, just on a historian basis. She says, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. And I could agree to struggle with all the other questions, all the things she was writing about, the scandals in the church, the undesirable things about mega churches, and all the questions in the Bible, the weird things in the Bible. She talks about the sexual ethics in the Bible being so different than the cultural sexual ethics. She goes, I, can, I agree to struggle with all the other questions. Like, they're important for sure. They're not the main thing. And she says... Christianity makes this singular historical claim and that that is everything. And so I found myself kind of creeping toward this point where I was going to be more than 51% persuaded that the Christian account of the resurrection is the best answer we have. 
And so she says, and if that's true, I have to change my working hypothesis of the universe. And so I went from praying basically simply for God to show himself to me to just seeing what it was like to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. Here's what she's saying. She says, yeah, churches have problems, and she got involved in a megachurch herself even as part of her becoming a Christian. And she says, the Bible has weird stuff in it. There's no question about it. There's stuff I don't understand. I don't have a good answer yet. And there are things that I have questions about. She goes, but if you bring it down to the one ultimate thing that everything stands or falls on is the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, everything Jesus said is true. If the resurrection of Jesus happens, the whole story is true and it's in play and the return of Christ is in play and the eternal life is what's offered if we listen to the voice of Jesus and believe him. So I wonder how much you believe. I mean, maybe it's 70%. You believe in the resurrection happened and you got 30% you're not sure. I don't know. But it's interesting because our default sometimes is to let the smaller percentage, say the 30%, be what runs our life. And we run our life based upon the 30% of doubt. But that's just 30%. And we don't let our 70%, the majority of our faith, lead us. And what would it be like? If you just started to kind of, maybe every day this week, you just sort of, every day this week, got up and you said that prayer she said that you just sort of said Jesus you are my Lord and Savior and you kind of begin to hear the words and maybe you read the gospel of Matthew maybe a chapter a day and you're just kind of listening to the words and to see if there's life in these words and you just pray Jesus you are my Lord and Savior 70% 30% I'm not sure but I, I believe and I've got unbelief and that's everybody I wonder, even now, if we just sort of right now end this sermon by you saying maybe that right now, in your own heart, quietly to Jesus, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. You are my Lord and Savior. Amen.